because we have been exposed to so many different uh, spiritual traditions from all, over, from all over the world, we have a lot of um, questions about maybe the purpose of the spiritual life, uh, the direction of the spiritual life, uh, the result and what's, what's going to happen to us if we undertake this spiritual journey. You know, is there really a soul to care for? Are there angels around here? Do we really have an ageless body and a timeless mind? What is enlightenment anyway? What happens to an enlightened person when they die? Is being gratefully dead a worthy spiritual goal? <laughs> <laughs> Well, when the Buddha was asked questions like this, <laughs> he refused to answer, saying that, you know, even if you knew the answer, it doesn't address the immediate issue at hand, which is, we suffer. And, as the Buddha continued, there is an end to suffering. So whatever the speculation is, for all the spiritual jargon and teachings that we might have been exposed to, we still have to deal with suffering. Our own suffering. And as the teachings of the Buddha has kind of been carried by merchants into other countries outside of India, to Tibet and China and Southeast Asia, and now coming to the West in Europe and the States and Canada, Again, the teachings of the Buddha is meeting with the prevailing socio-economic, spiritual paradigm, understanding, and after a few generations or centuries, there is an emergent um, hybrid. We are in the first generation, collectively, we are in the first generation of bringing the Dharma to the West, and what we do with it, how we hear it, how we practice it, how we share it, how we live it, is going to have an impact on the direction that this whole Western civilization goes, if you will. But wherever the teachings of the Buddha have gone, and while they may look now very different, with different rituals and different practices and different garb. They all rest on the Buddha's first teaching, which was the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. Now, the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths because they were his articulation of what he had observed to be true. Now, whether there was ever a Buddha in the world or not, the way things are is the way things are. The uniqueness of a Buddha is here is someone who has looked carefully, observed, and intuitively have come to understand some underlying principles, some underlying truths of the way things are. And it is a Buddha who articulates them. 
But it's up to each one of us to confirm for ourselves. You know, do these, does this articulation resonate with your own experience? It's not to be accepted on as dogma. You know, even the Buddha said, hey, don't, don't believe anything just because some authority is saying it, or because it's, you know, from hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, or many people report it, or you like the person who's speaking it. No, don't believe don't believe it because of that. But be willing to listen, using your best judgment, practice, check it out, see if it resonates with your experience, see if there's some alignment or if it's dissonant, and then if there is some alignment with your experience and the articulation of what you've heard, then have the courage to live that truth. Given the profusion of books, teachers, teachings of all the spiritual traditions, not just Buddhist traditions, but from all over the world, spiritual traditions, shamanic traditions, other ethnic, cultural, social condition uh, traditions of understanding life, understanding the world, uh, if we were just recently embarked on the spiritual journey, and we went to Amazon, or we went to your local bookstore if you still have one, and you looked around, there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of books, and you'd be hard-pressed to know where to begin. And so, maybe the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths is a good place to start, or a good place to return to frequently just to see if this is of value to you. It might support your practice. So the essence of the Buddha's first discourse, Four Noble Truths, is the foundation of all Buddhist traditions. So what are the Four Noble Truths? Well, the first is called Dukkha Satcha. Satcha means the truth, and so therefore the first Noble Truth is the truth of Dukkha. Now, I didn't translate the word dukkha immediately because that's the whole first simple truth. So what does dukkha mean? Or I should say, what is the experience of dukkha that we can verify for ourselves as true? Well, when I first started practice, it was the first three-month retreat that Western teachers were teaching back in 75. And... I thought I heard, and I haven't confirmed it, that first noble truth is life is suffering. Life is suffering. Welcome to the spiritual journey. <laughs> Hello. I'm not interested in this, uh, you know, spiritual path. And so, you know, I was, you know, mid-twenties, and young, vigorous, healthy, just full of it, full of myself. And... Uh, just went to my first retreat accidentally. I'll tell you that story later. And uh, set up back, leaned against the piano, and for two weeks, that was my first introduction to meditation. Two weeks. My body was screaming in pain. My mind was not happy being observed. 
And I heard this life of suffering. I said, what are they talking about? <laughs> you know, I missed it. You know, suffering, I wasn't suffering. Suffering was too scary a word for me. It's like suffering, my conditioning was, or my assumption was, my belief was, if I'm suffering, I'm a failure. And I couldn't open to it. I couldn't open to the truth of suffering. You know, ten years later, after doing a lot of retreats and suffering in every one of them, you know, one of Upandita's translators used the word, the oppressive nature of phenomena. <laughs> that was something I could grok. That, that was pretty soft, pretty gentle. Yeah, you know, mosquitoes are oppressive. The heat is oppressive. Being hungry is oppressive. Okay, well, I began to open to, no, really, the understanding of dukkha. I was experiencing dukkha, but I wasn't understanding it. So now I'm beginning to understand dukkha. And one thing that this one thing I learned about this is that we hear these teachings and we get this idea in our head of what it means and it always seems personal. And yet the Buddha is saying, this is the way it is for everyone. And so when I opened to my suffering, I thought, well, this is just my suffering. You know, if I keep practicing, pretty soon I'll be, I'll be done with this and on to the next noble truth, which is life is not suffering. <coughs> so, once I heard that, then I began to kind of open to, oh, this is, this is universal, this applies to everyone, it applies across the whole spectrum. And by personing it to my suffering, my family of origin, my particular mind, my particular body, I miss the significance of the Buddha saying, this is universal. Okay, so what does dukkha mean? Well, the first, you know, maybe most easily understood experience of dukkha is pain. You know, there's the truth of pain. We, we experience pain in life. We experience pain in the body. You know, slam your finger in the door. Pain. When you're hungry, it's painful. When you're not, when you when you eat too much, that's painful. When you get sick, that's painful. When you get a headache, it's painful. If you're on the sun too long, that's painful. If you just growing up, it's painful. Being born is painful. Dying is painful. And we've all experienced a lot of physical pain. It's the truth, isn't it? There's 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 pain. There's pain. There's also mental pain. That's obvious. You know, we all experience loss. We all experience fear. We all experience shame. We all experience humiliation. We all experience betrayal, uh, desire, anger, rage, fear, jealousy. It's just it's so obvious, isn't it? It's, it's, I mean, it's everywhere. And we've all experienced all of that at different times. So to say the truth of dukkha is, well, it's the truth of pain. You can't really argue with that. No, it's so obvious, right? <coughs> yes, there are times when it's not painful. 
know, it's pleasant. But we're not saying it's never not painful. We're just saying there is pain. Okay. Mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain, the pain of, you know, being alone, being lonely, being betrayed, prejudice, discrimination. There's social pain, there's individual pain, there's personal pain, there's interrelationship pain. Okay. Personal truth, got that. Okay, I agree with that one. I can... But there's a second meaning, or second experience, that is called dukkha. And it refers to the fact that everything changes. Everything changes. So, while we may be experiencing pleasant conditions now, we are relatively healthy, got some finances, and, you know, understand what's going on in our life, that can all change. You know, we can have, you know, uh, uh, medical diagnosis, we can have a financial crash, we can have an emotional upheaval, we can have good health turn bad, and it's beyond our control to prevent that. You know, we, we see it, we see the results of unavoidable change impacting our lives and other people's lives. You know, what was it, six or seven years ago, the the earthquake and the tsunami in northern Japan, people living there, going about living their lives in their village and in their towns, quite happily secure in their life's accumulation of all the accoutrements of comfort and security. And the earth goes, and the water goes, and everything they own gets washed out to sea. And not only that, the nuclear reactors nearby kind of get flooded, melt down, spew their poison all over the land, and you can't live there for the next few hundred years. Those people were living just like we are. Just, you know, happily trying to kind of put together the necessary requirements for a feeling of security and stability and safety in our life. And something completely out of their control goes. And it's all washed out. It's all washed away. It's a, well, we live with this insecurity right here, just on the periphery of our vision. We know this is possible for us too. And it doesn't really matter how much we've accumulated, how smart we are, what position we have, how much money in the bank, or your retirement account, or the nature of your personal relationships, or your professional relationships. They can all change outside of your control immediately. And so we live with this insecurity. We live with this vulnerability. We live this with this kind of you know, fear lurking right here. And we try our best not to see it. You know, just keep piling up stuff, keep keep moving forward. Don't look, don't turn around and look because it might catch you. And this insecurity, this instability, this looming potential fear is not satisfactory. And we can't escape it. It's not that there is 
you know, there aren't pleasant experiences, there are. But we could say that this dukkha of insecurity, instability, is hidden in pleasant experience. Because when the pleasant conditions change, they reveal unsatisfactoriness, the, the unsatisfactoriness of our life. Okay. Even just hearing this, we can begin to understand, yeah, there's, there's, there's insecurity in life. You know, and while it is conditional, you know, again, it's universal. It doesn't really matter. Male, female, or other, young, old, or other, east or west, wealthy or not, great job, terrible job, no position, whatever, educated, not educated. You know what? It's universal. You could be the king of the most wealth, or queen of the most wealthy pile of accumulated stuff. And it's no guarantee. Everybody experiences this insecurity, vulnerability, looming fear just on the periphery of what we're comfortable looking at in our life. Again, I miss the significance of this teaching because I always thought my fear, my insecurity, my vulnerability was, well, I just didn't quite have it together yet. I didn't quite have the job I wanted. I didn't quite have the income I wanted. And my car wasn't that reliable. And, you know, I personalized my insecurity to me. And there was always the anticipation, the hope, the, the expectation that pretty soon I'd get it together. If I kept at it, I'd get it together, then I'd be secure. Then I'd be really safe. Then I'd have everything I need and I wouldn't have to feel this insecurity. Maybe you think that. You know, if I could just get it together, then I'd be happy, safe, secure. It's reasonable to, I mean, that, that is the conditioning that we're offered in our families, in our culture, in our you know, upbringing. But if we're relying on changeable conditions for a sense of stability and satisfaction, that's illogical. That's illogical, let alone not possible. Okay, so we have this dukkha dukkha, which is obvious pain. We have viparinama dukkha, which is the insecurity and instability due to changeable conditions. There's a third meaning, or a third experience of dukkha to be understood, and it has two dimensions, greater and lesser, or... So, we'll start with the greater. We're born. Our parents and other caregivers doing the best they can, um, bring us into the world, and take care of us. They feed us, they bathe us, they clothe us, they poo us, they poop us, they clean us, they love us, they cuddle us, they try to educate us, 
and they do everything, everything they can to keep us happy, because if we're not happy, they're not happy. Right? And as soon as they can, they enlist the help of aunts and uncles and peers and friends and neighbors and babysitters and all kinds of people to help carry this little bundle of joy into the world. And then they hand us off to the school system. And the school system, they, they help too. So, and they hand us off to the church. And the religious leaders help too. And they sign you up with the uh, government to let you know that they're keeping an eye on you in a nice benevolent way. And, you know, everything is enlisted to help take care of you, to help kind of bring you up to be a nice, responsible citizen, family person, whatever it is that you know you have learned, so that you fit in. Because if you don't fit in, we don't treat people nice who don't fit in. Right? Okay. Then, at some point in our early teenage years, we get the message, you're on your own. Now you've got to do it. You've got to take care of this body, and you've got to take care of this mind. Because, you know what, we've done all we can for you, son, daughter, friend. Now you have to do it. And so we get the message that we're going to have to kind of take care of this project here. And so we're going to have to feed ourselves every day. Okay. Now to get that food, we're going to have a job. Or we're going to have some money. And to get that money, we're going to have a job. Now, to get that job, we've got to go to school, and now we've got to go to school for 16, 18, 20 years. Now, there's some duka. <laughs> and at the end of which, you might get a job. <laughs> so let's say, let's assume that you do get a job. You get a job, you go to work, 9 to 5 or 5 to 9, whatever your particular uh, career path is, and you work all day, and at the end of which you're exhausted, like that's what work does, and uh, then you've got to go home and get something to eat. So on the way home, you, along with everyone else trying to get home, stops off at the grocery store to get some dinner. So you go in the grocery store, you get one of these little carts, you push it up and down the aisles, picking off the shelves the things you want. Cans, packages, boxes, frozen stuff, fresh stuff. Put it in the little cart, go to the line and wait while the other people check out in front of you. And you get there and they bring it all up. And what used to fit in one bag for $10, now it takes, you know, one bag costs $100. Okay, that's the way it is now. So, you get the stuff in the bags, you run out to the car, put it in the car, drive home, eventually get it home, take everything out of the car, take it into the kitchen, unpack it. Take all the frozen stuff, put it in the freezer. Take all the chilled stuff, put it in the refrigerator. Take all the canned stuff, put it in the cupboard. Take all the... Put it, yeah, yeah. Fold up your, your bag, put it in the recycle bin. Fix yourself a drink, go in the living room, sit down. <laughs> Enjoy a few minutes of the barca lounger. You know, then, after you know half hour, you get up, go back in the kitchen, you get it all out. You get the stuff out of the cupboard, you get the refrigerator, the freezer, you fry it, you grill it, you chop it, you just dice it, you do this, whatever you gotta do, and you scramble it all up, set the table, put it on the table, everyone in the household comes to eat, fifteen minutes, it's over. Right. Clear everything out of the table, take it back to the kitchen, put all the scrape all the stuff into the compost bin, throw all the recycled stuff into the recycle bin, put all the dishes, scrape them and put them in the dishwasher. <sighs> Go to the toilet because you've got to take care of that too. And you're ready for bed. 
And you've got to do this every day for the rest of your life. That's just to take care of the food. You've got to take care of your clothes. You've got to groom yourself. Every day you've got to groom yourself. You've got to look in the mirror. You've got to check to make sure it's still you. And you've got to check to see if, you can, if you look okay, like you think you should look. And you have to fix your hair and fix your hair. And you've got to brush your teeth. And every day you've got to bathe. And you've got to do your nails. And you've got Because if you don't, imagine. Just don't brush your teeth for a couple of months. There's some <laughs> so it's like it's, it's, it's dukkha in disguise and so you keep you keep doing all this stuff to, just to take care of the body and inevitably it gets sick anyway okay doing the best you can so you got to do yoga you got to do aerobics you got to do this you got to watch all your statistics what's your cholesterol level your heart rate level and this you know let's just take care of the, now the mind no you, you got to take care of this mind because you know, you got to keep it entertained, you got to keep it educated, you got to keep it happy and keep it distracted and keep it, you know, kind of busy and kind of, you know, kind of entertained because if you don't, it's like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> it's like, and you have to do that every day. Okay, so you have this body and this mind, you got to take care of it for every day for. One, two, three, four, five. Some of us are in the sixth, seventh decade. Decades. At the end of which, what happens? Your friends go to your closet and pick out the best clothes that you haven't worn recently. (laughs) They give it to the guy with the big shiny box. He puts you in the clothes, puts you in the box, and everybody comes by to say, oh, goodbye. You look really good. <laughs> and then you either go in the fire or you go in a hole in the ground. Some would say that's a bad investment. Right? And we have to do it. The thing is, you cannot get somebody to do it for you. You can share the burden, but what you get from others, you offer to them too. Okay. Now, if all we're doing in this life is carrying this body and mind to the grave as pleasantly and as distractedly as we can, we're wasting our time. There's so much more we can do with this than just seeking eternal pleasure. And that is what we're doing here. Waking up to this is the way it is and then doing something about it. And we have that opportunity. The micro view of this kind of existential dukkha is we have these six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, Use nose, tongue, body, and the mind, and they are all constantly being stimulated, twenty-four-seven, three-sixty-five, eternally. We can never get away from, you know, sensations in the body. We are, we are always hearing sounds. Uh, we're always seeing. You, you have no choice. You have to see. If your eyes are open, you see, and you can close your eyes, but you still see things you saw before. And and the mind, you know, 
It just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. I'm sure you've noticed. And it's just, well, this constant stimulation that you can't shut off and you can't get away from is oppressive. Now, that's pretty heavy language. I mean, it's oppressive. It's hard to open to it, isn't it? It's oppressive. How do you get away? How can you end it? Well, is it any wonder that so many of us end up self-medicating, drowning ourselves, just, just trying to get some relief from the endless, constant stimulation, which is not always pleasant? This is oppressive, and we have to do it. So this oppressive obligation, responsibility to take care of this body and this mind in the culturally sanctioned way that we do is you can't escape it. You have to do it. So that that oppression, that oppressiveness weighs on the mind. Weighs on the body. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it's this is one way of understanding it. Okay. So it's hard to open to this, too. It's exhausting. It's oppressive. It is said that practice is to investigate the First Noble Truth, to discover the First Noble Truth, to realize the First Noble Truth. And why is that? Because we live our life distracted, avoiding, dismissing, denying, minimizing dukkha as much as possible. Avoiding as much pain, seeking as much pleasure, avoiding oppression, just... And so we keep it hidden. You know, the activity of our mind keeps it hidden. And so practice is to really slow down, take a look, take the blinders off, see through some of the layers of conditioning, and see what this human body and mind life really is. And when you do, you begin to see dukkha. You begin to not just experience dukkha, but you begin to understand dukkha. Now the experience of dukkha is really unsatisfactory. That's what dukkha means, the unsatisfactoriness of life. The condition or the characteristic that things, life, experiences is unsatisfactory. Not to deny pleasantness, remember? We're not denying pleasantness, we're just saying it doesn't last. So when we investigate this truth, we come to see that, wow, this is the way it is, and what can I do about it? Then we start looking for a different way of being in the world, a different way of relating to this human mind and body, this thing called life. So, this is the first noble truth. The dukkha characteristic. Dukkha in our life. The truth of dukkha in our life. Which is, it's unsatisfactory. But the Buddha said, when we understand dukkha, and we come to understand dukkha, we come to accept, acknowledge, work with it, there's relief.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.